15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast. It's all about astronomy, episode 205. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Morning, Andrew. How are you doing? I am quite well, thank you. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm well too. I know we're not supposed to be time-specific when we greet one another on these podcasts, but it's morning here and it's going to stay it that way for a little while, so let's, let's, let's call it morning. <laughs> we will, uh, regardless of when people are listening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if they some, people will be, some people will be listening to this months from now. <laughs> Seems to be the way with podcasts. Uh, but anyway, that's that's terrific. Uh, now, I'll, before we uh, get into this week's topics, uh, we have to congratulate uh, NASA and SpaceX on their successful launch and the astronauts making it to the International Space Station. They, uh, I, I saw the footage of the the launch, and they they went ahead. The weather didn't look too pretty, but they did it anyway. Yeah, they did. It, I think it, I think it sort of brightened up at the last minute. I think they were chancing it a little bit. Uh, but it's certainly the conditions were certainly different from when when they cancelled it on Thursday when uh, mm. they were worried about um, uh, the, the, the spacecraft itself creating lightning. I don't know whether you saw um, on I, I saw a tweet uh, it's on somebody's Twitter feed saying um, it was something to the effect that you cancel for for possible lightning uh, and then you know then there was some footage of a Soyuz liftoff. Uh, which was being struck by lightning all the way up. It was amazing stuff. I think it was real, but I'm not sure. So I think, uh, you know, maybe there's a slightly more gung-ho attitude across there in Kazakhstan. (laughs) Yeah, possibly so. Yes, indeed. Anyway, anyway, uh, it's good that it happened and it's uh, it's created another piece of um, of, uh, astronomical history. Yeah, uh, fabulous. The first first American-based launch... In not, was it nine years? Yeah, nine years. Yeah, that's right. Wow. And um, look at you know when you look at the inside of that. I don't know if you saw the footage of uh, a Bob and Dog floating around in the in the uh, capsule. It, it, mm. It's it's sheer luxury. It looks a lot different from any of the spacecraft that have been launched before human spacecraft, and certainly yes, indeed, yeah. Uh, and we look forward to the first Australian-based launch in 2158, I think that's <laughs> scheduled for. Uh, now, today, I don't think Today, so. Fred, <laughs> today, Fred, we're going to be looking at Planet Nine. Well, maybe we won't be looking at it because now they're starting to think it doesn't exist, which I'm very disappointed about. Uh, we'll also be talking about a dwarf galaxy that's repeatedly impacted our uh, Milky Way galaxy which sounds like a bad thing, but uh, it may have been the reason why our solar system exists. So um, good thing, apparently. Uh, We'll also be talking about, um, uh, well, a couple of questions. One involving uh, who is in charge of the orbiting satellites uh, with all the new satellites going up there. Is there a body in charge of controlling all of that? That's a good question. And a question we've had a couple of times, but we'll revisit it. Uh, Where is the centre of the universe? Um, Daryl, just there. See? You, you, no, that way. Look, look over there. No, uh, we'll try and explain it to you, Daryl, because I I don't know. But it, it, I, I I remember we get a quest, got a question once asking the address, um, <laughs> which may well um, 
relate to it, but anyway, we, we will uh, we will investigate that. But first of all, Fred, Planet Nine, yes or no? Oh dear, you might be disappointed about this story, but I'm devastated because because you wanted to find it. That's why. No, no, it's it's worse than that. <laughs> There's a whole chapter of. Uh, of Cosmic Chronicles, uh, a.k.a. Exploding Stars and Invisible Planets on uh, Planet Nine. Chapter 14 is called Stalking an Invisible Planet, and it even gave its uh, its name to the title of the of the US edition of, uh, of the book, uh, Exploding Stars and Invisible Planets. And, and maybe, oh, it's, maybe it's so invisible as not to be there. I did say, I did put a caveat in... Uh, at the end of that chapter, something to the effect that, you know, by the time you read this, we might have discovered Planet Nine, so you can ignore everything that I've said already. Um, well, <laughs> it may be that you can ignore it anyway, even though we haven't discovered it. So you, you shouldn't feel too bad, Fred, because I watched that BBC documentary that dates back ten or fifteen years now, called The Planets. Yes, and a lot of what's in that is now redundant. Because yes, we've be. made new discoveries. Yeah. So yeah, but that's just that's just astronomy. It is, and, and and what I gave was a snapshot of our state of knowledge as of about um, July or August last year when the thing went to press. So um, yeah, so we we do our best, and it's still possible it might turn up, Andrew. It's not. This is not a death sentence for uh, the idea of Planet Nine. So let's just um, go back to what it's all about. This story goes back, mm-hmm. I think, about four years now. Um, to two separate groups of astronomers who uh, who are interested in the outer solar system, and um, the observations were made, uh, and these were the groups of astronomers of some significance. You know, they, these are the top guys in their field, uh, but they noted that the uh, icy asteroids out there in the depths of the solar system are things we call Kuiper Belt objects or trans-Neptunian objects. They're slightly different of those two things, but we can lump them all together. Uh, they, they are, we know that they have extremely elliptical orbits, uh, you know, very elongated. And what they noticed was that the, that the direction of the elongation of these orbits all seemed to cluster in one particular direction. And so these two separate um, groups of researchers, they they did calculations on why this might be, why there's this sort of clustering of the of the alignment of the orbits. And uh, what popped out of the calculations was a, a, a very large and very distant planet that would maybe be shepherding uh, the orbits into the same alignment. In fact, that the, these groups came to the conclusion that that was the only thing that could keep these orbits uh, sort of, you know, narrowed down to that bit of the solar system, and hence the theory of Planet mm. Nine, um, which is assumed to be uh, five, five to ten times more massive than the Earth, um, orbits that carry it way, way beyond the solar system. I mean, it starts, its nearest is, a, is ten times away as far as Neptune is. Uh, you know, this is the hypothetical uh, the hypothetical planet, and um, more than t- um, t- 20 times farther away, um, 30 times perhaps farther away at its, um, at its aphelion, the furthest point from the sun. Lots of predictions been published as to where it is, but nobody's found it. And what I've always said, and I said this in the book, uh, that um, one of the problems is that, uh, that the predictions place the planet 
pretty firmly in the Milky Way where you're really struggling because there's so many stars. And what you're looking yeah. for is something very faint that's moving very slowly among a, a really rich star field. And that is intrinsically something that's very hard, uh, very hard to, you know, to find. So um, what is happening now? Well, I think there are two groups involved here, but I'm going to talk about one. Um, and this comes uh, actually from a, a conversation article written by uh, one of the members of, uh, of this group, uh, Samantha Lawler. Um, the, uh, this group of scientists uh, is called OSOS, which is a great name. OSOS is, an, oh, maybe it's OSOS in America. It, it's uh, an acronym Could for be. Outer Solar System Origins Survey. Uh, Ooh. Very nice name, Outer Solar System Origins Survey. Uh, and they actually kind of coming to a conclusion that maybe, maybe um, we've been led astray. And that's because these objects are so difficult to observe uh, that they're generally speaking, you know, the cargo belt objects are a long way off. They're small objects. Some, some of them are only a few kilometers across. And when you think of the distances, many billions of light years, uh, then you really, you really have a problem. Uh, they're, so they're, they're, they're so faint. And what they're saying basically is that um, the ones that have been found maybe have been found uh, preferentially, they've 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 been at advantageous positions uh, in their orbits and advantageous directions, and they're suggesting that uh, our knowledge so far of the Kuiper Belt is highly biased. Uh, in other words, there's a lot more there than we have yet seen. That that the biasing comes from these, you know, these the, the, these preferential positions where uh, the objects are that have been found so far. And so um, the OSOS or OSOS program has discovered some new uh, or, or newly discovered what are called, they're, they're actually called extreme Kuiper belt objects because they've got this extreme uh, eccentricity or elongation of the orbit. Uh, they've discovered what they describe as a handful uh, of these. Uh, and there is another Another survey that's found over 300 of them, uh, and mm. both of this, these two new sets of discoveries uh, can be shown to be, as, the, as Samantha puts it, they are statistically consistent with a uniform distribution. That means that the bias in a particular direction has gone away. Um, and what she says is, so now two independent surveys, both of which carefully tracked and reported their observational biases in discovering independent sets of extreme KBOs, Kuiper Belt objects, have found no evidence for clustered orbits. So uh, very, very interesting. Uh, they've done further work to test the Planet Nine theory. Uh, and, and you know, even the most extreme of the ones that, um, that, that have, have been... Um, or, that have basically been uh, suggested uh, in support of Planet Nine. Um, their extreme orbits, they're, they're, you know, they're very, uh, uh, essentially very elongated orbits, can be explained by known physical effects. That's what they say. So okay. um, maybe... So, so the, 
the likelihood of a Planet Nine is is um, much reduced, but not an absolute write-off yet. But it sounds like what they're saying is that the uh, multitude of objects out there is probably more likely to be the influence than one massive object. Yes, that's right. Exactly. So, and and the fact that um, you know we're only seeing a small number of these objects. Uh, and it just happens that the ones we've seen all line up in a, in a way that's probably more to do with where we've seen them in their orbits than than um, a, a real effect. So um, it's it, it's a, yes, it's not a it's as I said, it's not a death sentence, but it is really um, it, it's it calms things down. It suggests that maybe uh, the Planet Nine theory was a little bit premature. Actually, um, this article ends, I think, in a, in a very, very nice, nice way. Uh, Samantha Lawler uh, obviously has a way with words. Uh, she says at the end, many beautiful and surprising objects remain to be discovered in the mysterious outer solar system, but I don't believe that Planet Nine is one of them. <laughs> so there you are. That's a soft landing on a very disappointing revelation. Yeah, but don't, you know, um, don't give up on it. I'm sure there'll be people still looking for it um, because that's kind of what happens. It's That's how Neptune was found. The evidence for Neptune was, I think, a lot more convincing than the evidence for Planet Nine. And sure enough, it turned up pretty well exactly where they predicted it back in the 1840s. Uh, but um, we're dealing with something quite different here, I think. Uh, and it's, it's mm. a statistical... With with Neptune, what what uh, led to the discovery was was hard uh, calculations on orbital dynamics of actually the planets uh, Uranus and the inner planets that you can work out <clears throat> from the orbits of Uranus in particular that there's something else out there. With this, what we're what we're talking about is uh, statistics over a, a large number of objects that point to the existence of Planet Nine. And the bottom line might be that we just haven't been looking at a large enough number of objects that we've been selective about what we've seen. So, yes, there you go. Mm. I th- I, well, you know, I was going to say, be told we can we can live without it. We can, we can live without it. Um, um, I think people, if they do have a copy of uh, Exploding Stars and Invisible Planets, should um, should still read the chapter anyway because I talk about other things that have been discovered by the same sort of technique. It's not just about Planet Nine. Yeah, they could keep reading the chapter unless, of course, they can't buy any toilet paper. And of course, you know, <laughs> there you go. That's the problem solved. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. All right. Well, um, we we will certainly keep an eye on this story because uh, you just never know with astronomy. Some some other curveball could uh, pop up that goes oh. Uh, the only reason that exists is because there's a planet nine. Yeah. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, it now looks like perhaps not. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Once again, a special thanks to our patrons, the people who put a little bit of money every month into the Space Nuts podcast. And there are a couple of options these days. If you uh, have one preference over another, you can do it through Space Nuts Supercast website, which is spacenuts.supercast.tech. And there are different options there. You can buy bundles. Uh, for five, six, seven dollars a month or thereabouts, uh, or you can go to Patreon. We have a, a, a 
big following through Patreon, and mainly because we've been doing it through Patreon longer. But uh, you're more than welcome to sign up through either of those platforms, uh, Supercast or Patreon.com slash Space Nuts. Now, as I've said many times, it is not mandatory, but if you uh, feel compelled to put a few dollars in our kitty so that we can um, do extra things like purchase new recording equipment, that that kind of jazz, uh, you're more than welcome to do so through either of those platforms, Patreon or Supercast. Now, Fred, let's move on to the next topic, and that is uh, an interesting uh, discovery about a galactic crash, I think they're describing it, um, this dwarf galaxy that keeps smashing into the Milky Way, and they now believe perhaps that it's why we exist, why our solar system is here, uh, which does make for a compelling story, I imagine. Uh, in, indeed, it does. Um, uh, it's it's a great story, and it's actually very close to home, is this, Andrew, because the dwarf galaxy that we're talking about that smashed through the plane of the Milky Way um, was discovered uh, at the United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope, uh, and I think it was discovered when I was astronomer in charge there. Uh, actually, it wasn't. It was just before... But it was yes, it was earlier on than that. Uh, so it was um, it was a discovery made. Uh, the, the the research paper discovering it actually was published in 1994. I think I'm right in saying that. Uh, That's the year I moved here. Uh, I've been here for 26 uh, years now. Yeah, mm. yeah. Anyway, um, but it was it was discovered. Uh, at the UK Schmidt Telescope. Actually, it might have been 1995, uh, which is the year I took over as astronomer in charge. But I worked there before before I was astronomer in charge. I worked there for 10 years as just one of the oiks taking photographic plates, and that was how uh, this dwarf galaxy was discovered. So there you are. <laughs> That's So maybe a dwarf galaxy that was discovered by the United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope uh, uh, is the reason why we exist, which is a nice. Ah, we should make something of that. Yeah, we. Yeah, yeah. Um, put a, You know, not quite sure what. A, a, a trophy. <laughs> trophy. Put a trophy up on yeah. the mantelpiece. Trophy. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, what's the story? And really, what what allows us now to make the absolutely exquisite observations that this story requires? Um, uh, I, I, the, the the facility is the Gaia spacecraft. That's uh, the new part of this story. Gaia is a, a European uh, mission. Was launched probably five, six, seven years ago, maybe. Uh, it, it's uh, essentially doing absolutely high precision measurements of the positions of stars uh, in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, and its total, I think so far, is about a billion and a half that they've measured. It's a huge number, many, many more than we ever did uh, with the telescopes like the Schmidt back in the 1980s. Uh, but they also measure their velocity. So what uh, the Gaia data have shown us is the way these stars are moving. And so... The Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy, 
And as you can guess, it's principally in the constellation of Sagittarius. We've known for a long time that it's uh, that this is one of the dwarf galaxies that is in orbit around our own Milky Way. And more than that, it's actually being dismantled by the Milky Way. Um, the two best examples of the, are the large and small Magellanic clouds. They're much, much bigger than the Sagittarius dwarf, but they, um, they are two being torn apart over uh, timescales of millions of years, uh, hundreds of millions of years probably, um, and eventually will wind up as part of the halo of our galaxies, that halo of stars that surrounds our galaxy. So the, the, the Sagittarius dwarf is in the same boat. <laughs> it's being uh, torn apart by tidal forces. But uh, it's much smaller and it's actually nearer to the uh, the plane of our galaxy than the Magellanic clouds. And what's now happened is that because of the observations of um, of uh, the Gaia program, the, the Gaia spacecraft being able to measure these star positions very accurately, what it means is that you've only got to wait two or three years. Actually, it's probably about five years. Uh, but you measure them again and they've moved. And so you can you can actually work out what the how fast these stars are traveling. Um, and so they've done that for the Sagittarius dwarf. And that then allows you to track back as to where it's come from and how it has behaved uh, in uh, its interaction with the Milky Way galaxy. And so the... The, the the models that allow you you know that allow you to do this show that the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy has basically fallen through the plane of the Milky Way three times. Um, oh wow! First one was about five billion years ago, then again about two billion years ago, uh, and uh, and the third time only one billion years ago. And what they're saying, and I should say, this is uh, research uh, that's done actually uh, by astronomers at the a place I used to have a lot to do with, Instituto, Instituto de Astrofisica de Canarias, which is the Canary, uh, the, the Canary Islands Astrophysical Institute. Uh, pardon my Spanish. It's in Tenerife. Uh, they operate telescopes in La Palma, and I uh, used to work there quite a lot because the, there's a British um, facility there as well, or, or it was. It's now um, it's now much more collaborative than that. Uh, so the the, the the people at uh, IAC, it's called Instituto Astrophysica de Canarias. That's um, the, the the place where this work has been done. So what they looked mm. into was uh, first of all the model, and the model shows that the Sagittarius dwarf has has whacked through the Milky Way three times, but you can do a, you can come at this from a different angle. You can look at the star formation history in our galaxy, and you can do that by looking at star uh, colors, luminosities, distances. Um, you, you can basically do this giant analysis because there's such a huge amount of data coming from Gaia, uh, and it turns out that our Milky Way has three periods of increased star formation which peaked 5.7 billion years ago, 1.9 billion years ago, and 1 billion years ago. And they're exactly the times that the Sagittarius dwarf is believed to have kind of punched its way through the disk of the Milky Way. So what's happening here is that gravitational interactions as this, this dwarf galaxy with all its stars passes through the Milky Way, they trigger the formation of new stars because there's uh, the plane of the Milky Way is rich in hydrogen and that's the raw material of stars. So this disturbance is what, you know, there's a kind of compression of gas and that actually 
uh, kicks off the star formation. And so um, what they are suggesting uh, is that that period of uh, enhanced star formation 5.7 billion years ago is probably uh, the, the, the same, um, what you might call the same batch of star formation, the same period of star formation in which our sun formed. The sun formed about 4.6 billion years ago. So it's a little bit more recent than that, but uh, the sun could be, you know, part of the, the, the end wave of this star formation that was caused by that first uh, transfer, transit of the dwarf galaxy through the disk of the Milky Way. It's a very nice story, I have to say. Uh, and, um, you know, the, uh, the, 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 it brings together the, uh, the, the, the many facilities that we've got to do astronomical research these days, but in particular, um, the Gaia project, which is really an excellent project and, and is mm. doing remarkable work. Yeah, and these uh, galactic collisions are not unusual, really, are they? I mean, we've talked before about our impending collision with Andromeda in 60 gazillion years' time, but um, <laughs> th these things are happening all the time. There's a couple of others that are happening as we speak, are there not? Yeah, there are. We we see them, you know, the most famous of the antenna galaxies, two galaxies that very close together and their spiral arms are kind of being spread out and it looks just like an ant with two giant antennae sticking out of its head, uh, which is why they call the antenna galaxies. And that's that's the disturbance that's sort of stripping off the spiral arms um, of the galaxies. And now that sort of thing happens when you've got two galaxies of a similar size colliding and it's what will happen and it's about uh, three and a half i think billion years should be in your diary andrew we've talked about it enough. i know i just yeah. you know I, I never look at my diary <laughs> three billion three and a half billion years down the track this is going to happen to ours that's probably what the end product will be uh, it'll take a few billion years to settle down but we might wind up looking a lot like the antenna uh, galaxies i've seen simulations of what this will be like but Mm. Uh, with a dwarf galaxy colliding into a, a, a big galaxy like ours, the, the, you know the, the outcome is different because the big galaxy has enough mass that its its shape is not dramatically affected. Although these authors are suggesting that those collisions with the Sagittarius dwarf uh, through our, our, the plane of our galaxy might well have given rise to. Uh, the spiral structure that we see in our own galaxy now that maybe had a different spiral structure be before that and uh, what we're seeing uh, as in terms of our spiral structure and we can map it using infrared and radio telescopes, um, that might be a result of these collisions, which is itself an interesting idea. Yeah, uh, and the bottom line being that uh, mathematically the timing is exactly right for the birth of our sun, therefore yep. our solar system. Yep, so we might not have been here without all this, which is a very sobering thought. It is, rather, but uh, if it didn't happen, we wouldn't know about it, would we? <laughs> if we weren't here, we wouldn't know about it either. Exactly. <laughs> all right, fascinating. Uh, you're listening to the Space Nuts podcast. It's episode 205. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Just a reminder, too, if you would like to visit our website, you can check out the Space Nuts shop. It's bytes, B-I-T-E-S-Z dot com slash Space Nuts. You can listen to back episodes of the podcast there or through your favourite podca podcast distributor like Google, 
Apple, Spotify, Android, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Pocket Cast, CastBox, or you can set it up as an RSS podcast feed. All sorts of options. Uh, But while you're there, check out the shop because uh, all sorts of amazing things are available for sale and a few not-so-amazing things like uh, some weird sci-fi novel. Uh, But T-shirts and cups (laughs) and polo shirts and uh, you name it, all available through the Space Nuts shop on our website. And a few of Fred's books there too, even though one's got a redundant chapter. (laughs) But we won't be talking about that today, Mm. will we, Fred? Mm. Uh, Now, let's get to some some questions. Um, This one comes from Peter in Burwood in Victoria. Uh, Hi, Andrew and Fred. Thank you so much for a wonderful podcast. Have we done one of those? Uh, Anyway, uh, my question is, recently I was thinking about Elon Musk's Starlink satellite system, which made me wonder if there are some type of global authority who determine where you can or can't place a satellite in orbit. With the ever-increasing number of satellite launches combined with projects like the Starlink system, I imagine there should be an authority who controls the occupation of satellite orbits. Either way, I think your answer will be very interesting. Keep up the great work, boys. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Um, yeah, it is something to wonder about. We've uh, we've had uh, a lot of people talking about the observation of launches and the lining up of the satellites and lights in the sky. I mean, we're talking thousands of satellites, really, that are starting to pop up there. And uh, one wonders, is there a global authority that oversees all this? Uh, The answer is really interesting, exactly as Peter says. Either way, I think your answer will be very interesting. So so you've got to deal with um, different sorts of satellites. Um, The geostationary satellites, these are the ones that uh, basically we we mostly use for telecommunications. Um, They're the the large satellites. They weigh 13 to 15 tonnes. They're huge things. They're sitting up at a distance of 36,000 kilometres above the surface of the Earth because at that distance, they go around once per day. They follow the rotation of the Earth. So they're always over the same point on the Earth's surface and they'll beam, you know, they beam stuff down to to, um, users on the planet. So... That region of space uh, is very, very specific. They've got to be at exactly the right distance. Uh, They also, it works best if they're right on the equator. And so you can imagine that there you've got a very, very narrow uh, um, region within which spacecraft can, can actually successfully operate. And that region is allocated. Um, I, I meant to uh, follow up. I think it's probably the, the um, communications authority that does that, uh, the international uh, telecommunications body. Um, so you're, you're allocated your uh, your orbital slot. Uh, and I know because um, we have a good friend who actually operates these satellites. She works for Optus. And I know from talking to her, that um, much of their work is to keep the spacecraft on station because uh, gravitational forces from the moon, from the sun and planets actually tends to disturb the position of the satellites. And so they've got to do periodic burns of their thrusters just to keep them in the right place so that they 
fulfill the rules. They're actually in a box. There's a kind of box of space that they're allocated and they've got to keep them inside that. So that's mm. the sort of thing that you would expect to find in the space world. But from my reading of the situation... I knew there was a, I knew there was a but. There's a but, yeah. <laughs> there had to be. Uh, from my reading of the situation, in low Earth orbit, it is much less, uh, less controlled. Um, and actually... I love the, the, there's a Washington Post article, it's a few years old now, uh, written by uh, Christian Davenport, uh, and he titled his article, Companies Flood Earth's Orbit with Satellites, but No One's Directing Traffic. And wow. That's kind of it. And, you know, that's how we've, we've suddenly got this, uh, this flood of satellites that have certainly taken the astronomical world by surprise, uh, the Starlink satellites and the OneWeb ones, which um, uh, which were also being launched. OneWeb, I think, is now in financial difficulties, um, and I'm not sure what the future of that is. But but SpaceX is is going gangbusters uh, with their plan to launch 12,000 Starlink communication satellites. So um, the reading of the situation I have, and once again, this is a few years old. I'm going to read from an article by Jeff uh, Foust or Faust. Uh, in the Space Review, um, and he, he's he's talking about the authorities. He's basically this this is a, 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 a basically an article that's advocating somebody directing the traffic, basically. But there's a paragraph here that I think tells the story as it is. I believe it's still this is still the case today. It may have changed, but I think it might still be the case today. Mm. The concept of on-orbit authority, and that means an authority that, that looks after spacecraft on orbit. Today, the concept of on-orbit authority is a grey one for commercial spacecraft. In the United States, the FAA, that's the Federal Aviation Administration, is that right? Uh, the FAA's Office of Commercial Space Transportation, AST, regulates the launch and re-entry <coughs> of commercial vehicles, However, <clears throat> excuse me, however, it has no direct ability to regulate spacecraft between the end of launch and the beginning of re-entry, including oversight of their activities or ensuring that they're in the proper orbits and don't pose a risk to other spacecraft. <clears throat> it's a bit worrying, isn't it? <laughs> it is fascinating. Yeah, so I mean, within our atmosphere, we have air traffic control, which regulates the flight paths and the slots and the altitudes of aircraft. Yes, but it exactly. sounds like in space, it's a different kettle of fish. Yeah, so so the, the, um, this article is is very quite complex. That you know the stuff we're talking about. Let me just read a bit more. Um, FAA mm. officials have made it clear in recent years that they would like to close that regulatory gap between launch and reentry, seeking on-orbit authority for commercial vehicles. The FAA believes it's time to consider closing the current regulatory and safety gap between launch and re-entry, said George Field, FAA Associate Administrator for Commercial Space Transportation, at the opening of the FAA's Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee uh, meeting in Washington, May the 8th. That was actually um, about six years ago, so it's quite a while back. Um, the, and nothing seems to have changed much. I don't think so. Uh, he says, our goal will be to promote orbital space transportation safety, including for orbital debris mitigation for spacecraft whose primary function is transportation. So um, mm. one thing to say is, of course, this these things are all tracked. Uh, there are authorities, principally 
you know, with the defense um, uh, agencies. Uh, but there are authorities that track everything down to about 100 millimeters in size by radar. So we do know where things are, but that doesn't mean, or at least where the big stuff is, because there's millions of bits that aren't tracked smaller than that. Uh, and that's the danger of, uh, of space debris. But with the big stuff, at least we know where they are. Um, but there's nothing that says, well, it should be here and it's not here, so we're going to find them or something like that. It, all that's telling you is where the, where the space entities, the spacecraft and the, the bits of debris, whereabouts they are in their orbits. So very interesting stuff. Uh, I'd like to... Indeed. Look, look, look. It sounds like we're kind of um, in, in the cowboy era of space at the moment when, you, uh, when there was no law. There was just, you know, you and your six gun. Yes. Until barbed wire came along, that, that ended the era of the cowboys. Yes, that's right. So maybe we could send up some barbed wire. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's probably already well, up there. Uh, yes, barbed wire equals space junk. I'm afraid that's the trouble. Mm. Um, but yeah, I look. I'm. I'm. T- to be honest, I'm a bit surprised at this. I thought things had moved on, um, but so far, and I, I confess, I haven't done an, an in-depth search. And what I should do, I do know people um, who are deeply involved with this kind of thing, um, and um, I, I, I will talk to them because I'd like to know. You know, I'd like to know the answer to this myself as to whether. There is a movement in place. I mean, we've we've still got COSPAR. There's a meeting of COSPAR, the Committee for Space Research. That's been going since the 1960s. It's the, the, the kind of global authority for space work. Uh, they meet every two years. They were supposed to meet here in Australia this year, uh, actually in August. But that, of course, has been uh, postponed due to COVID-19. And I think the plan at the moment is be- uh, meeting at the beginning of next year. Um, but th- that's the sort of body that you would expect will be looking after this kind of thing interesting yes, stuff indeed. and of course very interesting what's brought it home is um is the the fact that yes we've got uh elon um putting putting his spacecraft up there um elon is uh, not a cowboy he's an extremely able entrepreneur uh and we've only you know we started the this segment off lauding his praises for getting uh doug and bob up there to into orbit yes. for the first time and, and marvelous in fact he, uh, i've yeah. Oh, it is marvellous what he does, and he's, he's, he's becoming quite a hero amongst um, those of the astronomical fraternity. And, and I've, I've actually read some of the uh, material that's been online, particularly on social media, in response to what he's done, and people adore him. I know he's got his critics, but people adore him for being in a position to do this and, and doing yeah. doing such amazing things. Uh, yeah, he's being looked at as, as quite a folk hero. Yes, that, that's, that's right. So, I said. Yeah, mm. but um, you know, um, there's uh, he's he's not the astronomer's favourite because of the SpaceX constellations. Um, I was going to get to that. Yes. Yeah, and and there's ethical issues as well with his plans for Mars, which um, uh, I was in a meeting a couple of weeks ago. Where we were talking about this, the, the ethics of spaceflight, uh, and. It's not clear that he's got a mandate uh, to go and, um, you know, colonise Mars, which is certainly on his agenda. So mm-hmm. in very interesting stuff, um, you know, uh, and, and maybe that's the way it is. You've got pluses and minuses with everything we're trying to do at the moment. So he's not the messiah. He's a very naughty boy. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I couldn't help myself. No, I it's not. A, yes, mm. I like that. 
<laughs> okay. Um, thank you so much for the uh, for the question, um, uh, Peter. I really appreciate it, and certainly opened up uh, an interesting discussion. Now let's move on to our next question. This one comes from Daryl, and it's an audio question. G'day, Space Nuts. Daryl here. I was having a chat with a mate the other day and was discussing the centre of the universe. He seemed to feel that there wasn't really a centre of the universe and I think that there is. Can you tell me if there is a centre of the universe and what would you find there? And the other question I have is the deep field uh, photo that was taken a few years ago by Hubble, is that towards the centre of the universe or is that uh, on the outer edge of the universe? Anyway, love the show and uh, thanks very much. Thank you, Daryl. I strongly suspect Daryl is Australian, Fred. <laughs> Maybe. Anyway, it's great to hear from him. Thank you, Daryl, for your question. Um, it is one we've, we've been asked before, but um, it is a really interesting one and it's kind of counterintuitive. Uh, and the glib answer, and it, I mean, you know, it is glib, but it's actually factually the answer, is that um, there really isn't a centre to the universe that we can perceive. So let, let me start, I think the, probably the way to do it is to start with the second question that Daryl has about the, the Hubble Deep Field and the Ultra Deep mm -hmm. Fields. These are photos that, that show... Um, you know, the universe uh, back as it was almost 13 billion years ago. They're going back a long, long way. Um, that image, uh, you could take it in any direction and you'd get the same sort of thing. You wouldn't get the same galaxies, of course, but you'd get the same distribution. And that is because, to the best of our ability, uh, the best of our ability to, to determine it, the universe is the same in all directions. It's isotropic is the technical term. Uh, and that kind of comes as, takes us back to the first question. Does the universe have a center? Uh, well, if it does, we can't perceive it. Uh, but, uh, but the glib answer that I was referring to a minute ago is that because the universe is believed to have uh, emerged from a, what's called a singularity, a point with no dimensions, then um, everywhere was at the centre. Essentially, there, there was no, uh, there was no, um, you know, specific centre to it, because the, the whole thing expanded from a single point. Now that's really hard to get your head around. Um, yes, we always think of, of you know, an explosion, something expanding. We always think of looking at it from the outside, but it's uh, it's the, the geometry that we intuitively think of when we when we think of something expanding doesn't really work uh, with the universe the the observation we can make is that it is expanding it seems to be expanding in the same the same rate in all directions um, there have been issues with that we've discussed those within the last few weeks about the uh, some people think that the um, the acceleration is not the same in all directions but I think this the general consensus still think it is um, so that's the observation that we make, that, that it's expanding. And then from that, you work backwards to get the idea that there was a single point, a singularity from which it expanded. But that tells us nothing about any centre or any you know, preferred direction 
in the universe. Um, to all intents and purposes, it's the same everywhere. So no center and, uh, and, and really no chance of finding one. Um, although I have to say that as time goes on, we get more and more detailed mappings of the expansion of the universe. And it is just possible that one day somebody might find something that says, well, there's a bit more of the universe on this side than there is on that side. And that might, you know, impose an, an idea of direction on it. But it, it, it's, to be honest, it's hard to see even that happening because we are limited currently in how far we can look by the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is a horizon that we can't see any further than. Um, mm. where looking back to the flash of the Big Bang. And within that sphere of visibility, the universe is highly isotropic, uh, you know, very much the same everywhere. And it's only the tiniest ripples on that cosmic microwave background radiation that tell us that uh, the, the Big Bang itself had echoes in it uh, that eventually led to the formation of galaxies. They're, they're the frozen um, uh, signals of, all, of, of, of uh, acoustic waves within the, the Big Bang itself. So apart from those tiny variations, the Big Bang is the same everywhere. And that suggests that yes, there was no center to it, that what we see uh, is this, you know, a universe that's isotropic everywhere. And no matter how hard we looked, we wouldn't see any evidence of something different. It's, a, it's, it's, hard, a, it's hard to get your head around because I, I, know where, I know where Daryl's coming from because uh, you, you, know, you, you think of the Big Bang as hap happening somewhere and everything bursts out from that point in the same direction or in all directions at the same speed and ever expanding. So surely if you go back from the outside in from all directions, you've got to come to a point in the centre. I guess that's what he's getting at. Yeah, but the thing is, um, I, you know, I mean, the, 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 there, was a, there was a place where the Big Bang was and it was here. And that's because, <laughs> you know, it's here everywhere because it, it did come from a single point. Um, uh, the, the thing that makes it difficult is that on very large scales, geometry doesn't work the way we think it does here on Earth because it's affected by gravitation. And, you know, the, the, the idea that we had back in the 70s that was that the universe might be closed, uh, what we call a closed universe, which means uh, that if you head off in a straight line, eventually you come back to where you started from that it's a, you know, that because the universe has a geometry that brings you back to where you started. Right. Uh, that's actually not the current view of the universe, but, um, but it, 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 what the lesson it, the lesson it gives you is that you can't just rely on our intuition when it comes to what shapes things are and how things work. And that's why, uh, uh you know, whilst we might be wedded to the idea of a center, uh, the the evidence is that there isn't one because geometry doesn't let you have one. Um, so it all sounds like waffling, I know, but um, uh, but believe me, that's what the mathematics tell you and what the gravitational theories tell you. Well, I'll give you a mathematical probability. Your explanation is going to spawn at least one or two more questions <laughs> about this. <laughs> well, that's good if if it if it does because the questions are always great. You know, we yeah. we learn from the questions, so. Um, Thank you for everybody who sends them in. Because yes, indeed, and thank you, Daryl. <laughs> that was um, thought provoking, and the answer to your question is yes and no, or no, or, or could be no and yes. I, I'm not, I'm a, 
jury's out on that one. Uh, but uh, if you do want to uh, create an audio question for us, you can do that at our website as well, bytes.com slash space nuts. Uh, just make sure you've got a microphone of uh, reasonable quality and an internal microphone on a laptop will do the trick. And you just uh, press start recording, tell us who you are, where you are, all your bank account details, how much you've got. No, you don't need that last bit. Um, we just don't want to know who you are or where you're from. But, uh, yes, name and where you're from and ask your question and uh, we'll uh, slot it into the Space Nuts podcast if um, if we uh, have room and, and if we haven't answered it before. Although we've had that one before, but it's always worth talking about and there always seems to be something new to discover with, uh, with repeat questions. So don't feel um, too um, worried about that. Uh, send your questions to us on email as well. We we take them in written form too, so uh, easy to easy to uh, deal with either way. Uh, so thanks, Daryl. Thanks uh, to everyone who's contributed this week. Thank you, Fred. We've got to wrap it all up for another week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we should do, shouldn't we? That's been a bumper edition today. Um, that's sure has. Due to your guest and he's rambling on about everything, so I'll try and be more concise next time. I I don't think people would like it if you were more <laughs> concise, Fred. No problem. Anyway, good to talk, <laughs> and uh, we'll speak again soon, Andrew. Indeed we will. Thank you, Fred. Uh, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week on another episode of the Space Nuts podcast. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. And a few galahs by the sound of it. Yeah, yeah that's right. Mm. Actually, they're, All right, now. Yeah, they're um, cockatoos. Oh, are they? Okay. Yeah, we get cockatoos, corellas, pink and grey galahs. Yeah. Uh, do you get king parrots? Yeah. We used to get king parrots in. Uh... We do sometimes if the if the seasons are right. Yeah. We have at the moment because they've been driven in by the drought. But um, normally not, no. But uh, we've had some unusual breeds turning up here because there's nothing for them to eat or drink out in the bush. But that's changed, so I suspect some of them will move on. But we've got some at the moment that are out there. They're beautiful birds. <laughs>